Welcome to the Novara Law Podcast. My name is Jenna Hilgenbrink, and today we're talking about premises liability and an amicus brief written by partner Karen Ludden. With me today is none other than the partner Karen Ludden. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, If you would, just give a brief introduction to uh, yourself, your history, and uh, what you do here at Novara. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am chair of the commercial insurance group at Navarra Law. Um, I have 30 years of experience representing commercial insureds and businesses in Michigan, ranging from banks to medical um, facilities, gas stations, anything that has a parking lot, apartment complexes. Um, And we've done a lot of uh, premises liability in this state, and uh, that's what we're here for today because it's uh, at risk. All right, very good. Thank you so much. We're going to start with our disclaimer, as we do as always. No attorney-client relationship is created or intended by listening to the recording of this podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended to convey general information only and not to provide legal advice or opinions. However, you can contact any one of our attorneys by logging on to novaralaw.com. And as we said, we're talking about premises liability in the context of the F&E oil case, a case pending before the Michigan Supreme Court, and you have filed an amicus brief in that case. Um, So why don't you just give a a general introduction to both um, the open and obvious doctrine, which seems to be at play here, um, and kind of where premises liability stands at the moment. So premises liability in general is the liability that a landowner would have towards people who enter onto the premises. And there are different duties depending on the uh, person that is entering the premises. There would be a different duty to somebody who's trespassing, for example, than there is to somebody who's an invitee or invited. Um, The Candil versus F&E oil case uh, is addressing an invitee. someone who was doing business at a gas station coming to pump their gas and they slipped and fell. So that is the traditional and the um, primary issue that comes up in premises liability uh, under the open and obvious doctrine. And um, that's sort of the background as to um, what this case is about and what it means. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the facts. We've touched on it just a little bit. So if you could go into maybe a little bit more detail as far as what are the facts at play here um, and why is this case so important to us? So in the Candiel case, uh, the plaintiff uh, drove up to a gas station, filled her car with gas, and slipped and fell somewhere between um, the location of her car and entering the building. And it was a snowy day. She acknowledged that it, it had been snowing, that there were snow plows out, um, but she fell, as she alleged, on snow-covered ice. The open and obvious doctrine in Michigan addresses the duty that a uh, landowner would have in the context of that. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit as we go forward in the podcast, but when you have an invitee, the open and obvious doctrine in Michigan says if the danger, if the hazard is open and obvious, then there isn't a duty on the part of the landowner to um, prevent injury because it should be something readily uh, visible to the invitee. There's a couple of exceptions to that in Michigan. One is if the um, hazard is unavoidable and the other one is if it is um, unreasonably dangerous and the typical example is a 30-foot pit without a rail around it. So that is the doctrine in play that addresses, well, what duty does that landowner have? And it's been Um, The law in Michigan for probably 100 years, those two exceptions uh, developed at least 30 years ago 
um, and have been around for quite some time, but that is the inquiry that you're making uh, when somebody slips and falls on a business owner's premises. But this case before the Michigan Supreme Court might change the trajectory of the open and obvious doctrine, is that right? Right. So the challenge um, that has come up now, uh, the Supreme Court has invited amicus briefs. We have filed one that has been accepted um, on behalf of the Insurance Alliance of Michigan and Acuity Insurance. Um, They are asking the question, should we review the way that the court looks at the elements of a premises liability claim? It is a negligence claim, right? A tort claim. And typically the four elements of a tort claim that we all learn in law school are duty, breach, causation, and damages. And you have to have all four of those. So you have to have a duty that the landowner has. The duty has to be breached by the landowner. They didn't do something they were supposed to do. There has to be causation um, that causes the damages. And if you're missing any one of those pieces, you don't have a liability case. If there isn't a duty, you don't have a liability case. If the duty isn't breached, you don't have one. If you breach the duty, but it didn't actually cause damages, you don't have one. And if you breached a duty, but there weren't damages, you don't have one. So we learn in law school, you have to have all of those four things. Um, And what is really in question in my mind that the court is struggling with is the issue of, well, who gets to decide what the duty is um, and whether it's been breached? And what has been the law in Michigan for, like I said, about 100 years, is that the trial court decides what the duty is. The jury instructions that are typically read to juries, the standard jury instructions say, I am the judge and I will instruct you as to the law. And the reason why they have the judge do that as a matter of law is because that requires reviewing the two kinds of law you can have, statutory law, which is passed by the legislature, and common law, which is passed by the courts. And the judge can research and know the law and instruct the jury, this is the duty that the landowner has. Um, And if there isn't a fact question, decide as a matter of law, was it breached or not? The, um, The plaintiff's bar is asking the question, why does the the trial judge get to do that? Why can't we just shift all of that to the role of the jury? So that is one of the inquiries um, of the Supreme Court. And also, what relationship does the way that things are set up in Michigan under the open and obvious doctrine have with regard to the second restatement of law, which we can talk a little bit about what that is. Um, But it's not binding law. It is something, though, that the Supreme Court in Michigan um, has tried to incorporate or at least follow the reasoning. And so their question, one of their questions is, uh, should we do something different in Michigan? Are we following the second restatement? Do we have to follow the second restatement? What about the third restatement, which has come along a little more recently in 2012? So they're grappling with the issue of um, the role of the the, uh, trial judge versus the jury the effect of the restatements on the open and obvious doctrine in Michigan, and also did tort reform, which happened in 1995, uh, went into effect in 1996, did that readjust the open and obvious doctrine? Um, Did it modify it? Did it um, incorporate it? Did it change it? These are the things they're looking at um, in this case. And, you know, just to, to punch up one of the points that you, you brought up in your amicus brief is, is the issue of stare decisis. Um, so why don't you go into that just a little bit, you know, following along with the law that we have practiced for 100 years? Right. So stare decisis is sort of a fancy Latin term that lawyers like to use. 
And all it really means is, you know, keeping the law steady so that people, um, communities, society can know what are their obligations, what are their duties. Um, is a, it's one of the foundations of law in this country and something we, we've taken for granted for a long time, that unless there is a change or a mistake or the legislature passed a new law, the law stays as is so societies can rely upon it. So one of the arguments in our brief is um, we have to apply the doctrine of stare decisis here because nothing has changed. Um, the law hasn't changed. The, um, the statute that the legislature passed has been in effect since 1996. Uh, the open and obvious doctrine has been there for a long time. Um, and we'll talk in a little bit about how the statute didn't change anything under the open and obvious doctrine, but nothing has changed. And so it's important for societies to presume that uh, laws are going to stay put. And that, that is what the doctrine of stare decisis is very important to society. You can't say, um, well, a landowner's obligation is going to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis by individual juries across Michigan in every jury trial potentially differently. Uh, because then a landowner doesn't know what to do. What is his responsibility? What is that company's responsibility if it's an apartment complex? What is its responsibility uh, to people in its parking lot? So it's just really important um, to keep the laws consistent uh, for the sake of how we um, we work in this in the state. And I think that idea is also uh, kind of backed up by the idea of having the judge decide this and not so much the jury keeping things consistent, uh, or at least a little bit more consistent than leaving uh, these, these factual issues up to the jury, right? Right. So, you know, the judge can decide as a matter of law um, what the duty is. And if there's no argument factually about what the homeowner did or the property owner did, the business owner uh, and what the plaintiff did, then the judge can decide as a matter of law. It never makes it to the jury. If there is a fact question, though, um, it goes to the jury. And um, if a duty has been breached and decided by the court that way, then also it goes to the jury um, because under tort reform, they have to allocate fault amongst the parties. And that is their role. So there is a role for the trial court and there is a role for the jury um, but they both have roles. We don't want to abolish the first two elements of a tort claim, duty and breach, that are the traditional role of the trial court because that's the foundation for all of our laws, really all of our tort laws. So let's get into that tort reform just a little bit. Um, and how does tort reform play into the case that we have here today? So tort reform is just the uh, shorthand that lawyers in Michigan use to describe a series of statutes that were passed uh, that went into effect in 1996. And um, they address uh, the jury's role of allocating fault. So basically, uh, once fault has been determined, fault is defined as you know, basically a breach of duty. Once it has been determined and goes to a jury, they have to allocate fault. Was the plaintiff at fault too? Um, was someone else at fault? Uh, they can actually allocate fault to an entity that's not a party to the suit, um, but they have to apply this comparative fault system which was first established in 1996. Before that, um, we had a contributory fault system which I won't go into, but it's a, it's a different system. Uh, and so it did establish this, and so the Supreme Court asks, is this statute, does that change open and obvious? Does it um, obliviate it? Does it um, presume that it's still in place? Does it 
you know, just what is the what is the relationship between the statute and the common law? Because they're different sources of law, and legislative law statutes preempt common law. So they're just asking, how do these pieces fit together in your mind? And so the amicus brief that we wrote addresses this issue, and it's our position that um, the comparative fault statute picks up where the trial court's role ends. So the first two elements of the claim, duty and breach, are analyzed by the trial court. Um, that that judge establishes the duty, addresses if there's a breach as a matter of law. If there's a fact question or there is a breach, it goes to the jury, and then the jury has to allocate fault on a jury verdict form, percentage fault. And um, so they don't contradict each other. In fact, if the legislature wanted to change the, um, the common law open and obvious doctrine, they could have done it right then, and there's Michigan law in abundance that says that that's where they should have done it if they intended to change it, but they didn't. And the idea of open and obvious doctrine goes to duty. The landowner does not have a duty to invitees um, for uh, conditions of the land that are open and obvious. So that is the role of the trial judge, uh, in our opinion, in the Samikas brief, and not the role of the jury. The jury allocates fault after that analysis, but open and obvious can only go to duty. Um, so that's how those pieces fit together. Uh, and it sort of all ties in with the stare decisis idea that you know, if the legislature wanted to do something and change it or get rid of the open and obvious doctrine, that is the place they would have done it and should have done it and didn't do it. And no case law since then has erased the open and obvious doctrine. So we're trying to have a stable body of law in Michigan that doesn't change with elections, that doesn't change when there's no fact change. That's very important um, to businesses in Michigan and also insurers who have to write insurance for those businesses, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later on. Yeah, you know, um, when we're writing insurance policies, we like to be able to plan things, right? Right. <laughs> so putting statute aside and actually getting to the fourth point in your amicus brief, which is uh, the difference between the second and third restatement and how each of those um, two items play uh, into this case at hand, why don't you go into that just a little bit? Um, what, what role does the, the second and third restatement play in this case? So by way of background, the restatements are um, written by the American Law Institute, and they, the first restatement was written you know, 75 years ago or more, uh, and they are supposed to be summaries of the law in this country generally, and they were used primarily for um, textbooks for law students and law professors to sort of summarize what generally is this law, this country doing with regard to negligence actions and tort laws. And of course, when you're generalizing like that, you're not specifying each particular state. Does it have a comparative fault system? Does it have a contributory fault system? Is it governed by statutes passed by the legislature or by common law passed by, um, ruled on by courts? So they're, they're making generalities. But the Michigan Supreme Court um, values, uh, particularly the second restatement, uh, which came along, I think, in 1965 and was amended a little bit later as it addresses um, premises liability. They, you know, respect the, um, the summaries that are put there, and some justices feel that it's very important, some feel that it's less important, but it's our position that the open and obvious doctrine in Michigan does follow the principles of the second restatement. Um, it doesn't use the exact words. There is a provision there that talks about how there isn't landowner liability for 
quote, known or obvious dangers, which is really another way of saying open and obvious dangers, but it's not the exact same words, but it's the same principle. And it's talking about it um, in the similar way that Michigan courts do, which we feel is, you know, instructive and useful and helpful, but not necessary because the restatements aren't issued by courts or legislatures. They're not binding at all. Um, the third restatement is even broader. Uh, it came out in 2012, and almost no states have adopted it because it's so broad, I would suggest it's not particularly meaningful because it just says there's a general duty of land possessors, right, to use reasonable care. And that's, you know, the Michigan Supreme Court has come up with such a fine-tuned analysis that addresses some of the exceptions we talked about for unavoidable um, dangers or um, unreasonable dangers. But generally speaking, the open and obvious doctrine is just so well developed that to go back up to a general duty to use care is going in the opposite direction of the type of parsing that has happened um, over the past few decades. So what what approach um, are you suggesting the Michigan Supreme Court uses? That they keep the status quo. I mean, it's a pretty well-organized and pretty well-honed doctrine at this point. Um, the landowner doesn't have a duty uh, to defend, to, um, protect invitees from the condition of their land if it's open and obvious, except where you can't avoid it and you have to go through there, or um, it is unreasonably dangerous, you know, like a 30-foot pit. That's a very reasonable application. And the trial court um, addressing this, deciding it as a matter of law, if there's no fact question, and if there is liability, because landowners do have liabilities, you know, moving it to the jury to allocate fault under the tort reform, that's the way to do it. That is a very sensible approach. It's the approach we've been having all this time. It's reliable. Businesses can rely on it. Their insurers can rely on it. It's just, it's a good system. It's a well-honed system. And we talk about the system that's already in place. Um, You know, why is your approach practical for insurers? Well, insurers uh, evaluate risk and pool the risk, and everybody pays a premium, right? And you don't know who's going to have a loss or a claim on that risk. But, you you know, when you have a reasonable system that's been in place that's predictable, you can pool the risk and pass on savings to the um, insureds in the way of premiums. But when you have this idea that juries are going to individually decide each and every case and the landowner won't know what their duty was until after the fact. That's a little bit like saying, after you pay your ticket, we'll tell you how you should have been driving. Um, It's very difficult for insurers to um, pool risks like that and underwrite it. So I think that the likely scenario is that uh, premiums will increase for small business owners just to absorb that randomness that would be created by this uh, scenario. So, it's not just society that relies on consistency of law. It's also insurers who are trying to underwrite that risk. All right. Is there anything else that we're, we're kind of missing just to wrap up our ideas um, that were honed in on your, uh, in your amicus brief for this case? Anything else that we should be talking about? Um, no, I feel like we've touched on the main points of the brief and what is before the Supreme Court, um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that 
uh, they will keep the status quo, but uh, we'll be looking and watching and uh, we'll let you know if anything changes. All right. That's all the time we have. We hope you learned something on this episode of the Navarro Law Podcast. We'll keep our ear to the ground as far as what happens at oral arguments in this case. Karen, I'm sure you'll be watching and listening. Until then, catch us next time. Uh, search for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search Novara Law Podcast. Mm-hmm.